Ah, 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 ah. Can you guys hear? Yeah. All right. Jason, your, your voice is so gentle. <laughs> so gentle, but so deep. Um, I wanted to share, before I do the introduction of today's speaker, and uh, you guys better get your notebooks ready because you're going to have to write a lot of things down. It's just one of those messages that are super rich. And so you got to be alert and pay attention because it's deep. And I know you guys are going to be so blessed by this message. Um, before I introduce our guest speaker, though, I kind of wanted to share a bit of a praise report. Um, some of our active leaders have heard this already, uh, active reserve leaders. But I want to share with the whole congregation since everybody was a part of it. But uh, we've all been praying for Pastor Jin, who is the um, uh, the up-and-coming lead pastor of Cherisong Dokyoa, which is our KM um, mother church, and we all have been aware that he's experienced a lot of persecution, a lot of opposition since his, uh, uh, you know, election from Pastor Huang. And, um, yeah, we've been really crying out. All the active leaders joined in on a three-day water fast. Uh, and um, active, reserve, members, non-members, all of you guys have really participated in praying into this. And so uh, one of the things that we were specifically praying for was a matter of taking church discipline actions. Um, there was a kind of like a, a vote that happened. And for those of you that were there, you got your tojangs. And it was funny because I got mine done in Itaewon, and the dude was like, what's going on? Because past three days, like, I've been seeing so many foreigners getting their stamps, and I was like, yeah, it's my church. But um, uh, but at that time, you guys knew uh, that uh, one of the deacons kind of pulled a little bit of a scene, pulled out what we think is a gas gun, um, and, you know, threatened to, you know, stop the whole thing, saying that everything was illegal. And it was just drama, you know. It was a lot of drama that was going on. That same deacon ended up interrupting um, our uh, Pastor Jin in the middle of his sermon and starting a scene as well. And so it was just... A lot of chaos, and what was most hurtful, I think, was when Pastor Jin approached the elders and said, something needs to be, um, something needs to happen. This shouldn't be allowed. This shouldn't be okay. Uh, they just begged him to just let it go. And so you can imagine as a, as a lead pastor, he didn't feel safe in the church. And so we prayed, and we really, uh, instead of trying to convince people and state a case or picketing outside of the KM, well, we took it uh, in on our knees, and uh, we just collectively pray together and i know everybody um prayed with us and praise the lord this past saturday pastor christian goes to pastoral meetings and there pastor jin spoke with him and shared with him that the elders got together and the elders that are not part of the whole conspiracy of you know thing of getting pastor jin uh getting him kicked out um, all rose up and they decided enough is enough. This is not okay. And um, as of now, they're taking steps for disciplinary actions. This is key. And I think Pastor Jin was extremely relieved to know that the church was rising up to protect him, um, as well as to protect just the unity of the whole church. Um, and so it was a lot of drama that was going on, but God is answering our prayers. And so praise the Lord. Um, God is working and... Really, really excited about what's going on at this time in this season. Uh, and so I'm going to introduce with that said, oh my goodness, is that Esther? Wow, I am, sorry, friend from high school. Can you give a wave? I have to give you a shout out. This is Esther um, and her husband, who I've never met, but hi. <laughs> um, uh, she, she went to high school with me. And so y'all know my testimony, right? 
Well, she saw firsthand, all right? <laughs> oh, it's so amazing to have you here. Yay. Um, sorry, I got excited. But today's speaker, and this man is the founder and executive director of something called the 5-2 Foundation. Now, this is a nonprofit foundation that provides a platform for other um, NGOs or missionaries or churches to uh, have a way or a space in order to raise funds, raise awareness, raise prayer support. And... Um, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Foundu 5-2 Foundation, but all of us are actually more familiar with it than we think. Uh, if you've ever been part of our support site, if you ever supported someone on missions here at New Philly or our support raising staff, um, you have already benefited from this foundation because that is what we use um, on the daily. And so he's the uh, founder and the executive director, and he has a history of working... Um, in really prestigious places, I'm going to just list them because I have the remote here, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, IBM Consulting, and Deloitte Consulting, are just a few of his experience um, background. He's going to share his testimony, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, but uh, not only is uh, he an amazing man of God, he's an elder at Jubilee Church, uh, but he's a dear friend to Pastor Christian and is Pastor Christian's accountability partner. And so he knows all the, he knows all of what's going on. <laughs> Uh, but he's a married man himself. He has a gorgeous wife, Heather, um, and uh, a really cute son, Jacob, who's playing the drums after service today. Uh, and they have another baby on the way. Actually, Heather is about, I think, eight months pregnant, and she was, like, ready to go. Like, she was, I don't know. And you guys, whoever has been to Hillside, you know that there's a lot of uh, stairs to walk up, and so... Really, God's grace was on her, hopefully, today as she walked up all those flights. Uh, but she's, um, they're just an amazing family. And um, they're actually used to be a part of JCM. And so uh, they have a lot of history with our church, with our church history. And um, they are amazing leaders at Jubilee. And so we're just really excited to have them here. I think this is Alex's first time coming out to our Itaewon service. And so I want us to really give a warm welcome. He's going to share about his ministry, share about what he's a part of. But he's also going to share a really awesome word um, for all of us today. And so let's give a warm welcome to Alex Lim. pastors preach to, can you guys hear me okay? Okay. So we're rushing here from um, Hillside, and I must say, it's like the easiest place to preach. I mean, everyone, you know, everyone was um, yeah, just so supportive, and um, yeah, I was really blessed by actually other people getting blessed. I mean, it was just, just an honor to be there. Um, can you guys start the PowerPoint? Yeah, the PowerPoint. Okay, one more slide. Okay, so let me uh, introduce my family first. So this is Heather, it's my wife, and Jacob is uh, our firstborn son, 17 months now. Next slide. This is our soon-to-be daughter. 
We don't have a name for her yet. We're joking. Um, you know, Jacob was actually really easy to name because he, uh, it took us a long time for us to get pregnant. So we named him someone who would fight for God's blessing. You guys all know Jacob's story, someone who would fight for God's blessing. And uh, the second one, we got pregnant with her right away. <laughs> so um, the word that we got from the Lord was abundance. I think the word this year for your church is increase, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of similar. So abundance, but there's no biblical word for abundance. You guys know the one word in the Bible for abundance? It's Jethro. <laughs> right, so we, we, couldn't, we couldn't do that to our poor daughter, scar her for life. So we're trying to think of you know, feminine, maybe feminine names for Jethro, which we can't do, Jeth- Jethrina. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. We're, we're thinking Jethroel <laughs> or Jethra. <laughs> okay. But, okay, so just to give you a brief background about myself, I'm going to talk about 5-2, you know, my testimony, of course, but also um, I want to spend most of today actually talking about work. I know a few of you would probably come to church wanting to hear about work, but I think it's such a, a needed word, such a needed message. So I grew up in um, Virginia, uh, not too far from Pastor Christian. I'm a little bit older. I grew up in a normal church, normal childhood, loving parents, um, good friends. And I worked in consulting most of my life. Okay? Um, so I worked for those companies that Aaron mentioned. And, you know, it was, I mean, I would say it was a good life. You know, the money at that time was very good. Um, it was a booming sector. Um, and nothing was really wrong. I mean, I was in a long-term relationship. You know, I bought a house. Everything was going well. But around 27, I looked back and I realized I wasn't fulfilled. And there was nothing wrong, but I knew that there was something else. And my fear was that I would be 60, looking back on my life, and for the, next, for the past 30, 40 years, I would have the exact same life, having a good life but not a great life, feeling things were okay but not fully content. So I had this fear at 27. So I did something that was very uncharacteristic, and I just left. I dropped everything. I quit the job, broke up a four-year relationship. Um, yeah. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have shared that. So, you know, I did something that was very um, unresponsible. I just left. You know, I told my parents, and I was supporting my parents at the time. Uh, and I just went to go backpack. And because I had so many miles from, from work, from traveling hotels, I just got a round-the-world ticket for a year. I didn't know where I was going, and I just hopped from country to country. Um, yeah, I, just, I just had that luxury, I guess, at that time to do that. And it really changed my life. I came to Korea. It was one of the stops. And in Korea, I was able to kind of gain some perspective and recommit myself to God, but this time without any limits. Um, so I finished the travels. I came back to Korea in 2005 thinking, you know, work consulting was very, um, like I said, I didn't feel content. But I thought, well, why don't I get a degree in uh, international development? My background was in technology. And I would use technology to help the poor. I thought that was kind of the good work. And so I came to Yonsei. I got a master's in international cooperation, focusing on development. And the plan was to work for maybe a Christian nonprofit. You know, social justice at the time, from early 2000, it was like a big thing. I mean, it's still big, but all the young kids were getting into this, social justice, working for a nonprofit. 
It was kind of all the rage, and I think I kind of got swept up in that. So, but that didn't happen. I got married, and we, all, we just started the 5-2 Foundation thinking um, the church is very good at making disciples. I believe that is the mandate. That's a biblical mandate. We don't get to choose what the church does. The church makes disciples. It plants churches, and it makes disciples. Um, but the church isn't necessarily called to do all the nonprofit social justice things. It's kind of sometimes a waste of resources, actually. So we thought the nonprofit 5-2 Foundation would be the arm of the church that's, that could execute these justice projects, orphanages, digging wells, um, business, microfinance. So that's what we thought 5-2 would be doing. So for our first project, we were trying to raise money to dig wells in Orissa, India. And from Hillside, some of those might still remember, we raised $30,000, and you guys were actually the largest donors. Sorry. Um, so you guys were actually the largest donors, and we were able to you know, give this money to our partner in India, and they were digging wells, you know, feeding water to thousands of people, rebuilding churches and orphanages. So it was a success in many ways, but um, when I look back, I realized that that wasn't what we were particularly called to do. And the reason I realized that is because, you know, being in Korea, we see so many missionaries here, right? So many missionaries come through. It's just a blessing. And every time I meet a missionary, I always ask, you know, what is your biggest obstacle? I just would always ask that question, you know. And the second question would be, how can we help? You know, missionaries being holy people, they would say, please pray for us. (laughs) But once you really get down to what their practical needs were, they would always say money. We need funds for support. We need funds to run our projects. You know, they're just being honest. And I realized that instead of us raising money for our project, five, so 5-2 five, owning and running our own projects, what we really needed was a platform so that anyone could raise money for their projects. So we would build something. It's called Grassroot. And it's a missions or ministry fundraising platform. It's any church can use. You can get it set up in minutes. And I think what's different about it is that the money goes straight to you. Okay? Can you go to the next slide? One more? Okay. So this is the chart that shows you initially what we thought 5-2 would be doing. So this is what I call a portal model, where 5-2 is at the top. We run and own all the projects, so they're kind of at the bottom. Okay, this is what we thought we would be doing. Okay, next. But this is instead what we knew that we were called to do, is to build a platform where 5-2 will be at the bottom. And we're actually nameless and faceless. No one actually knows who 5-2 is. We just provide this thing. But all the donors, because the money goes straight to the church, you guys are supporting your local projects, not to 5-2. Money money never comes to us. Um, And we built a platform. And it looks identical to the other one, except it's flipped, right? It's a a big change in... um, in our vision. And so what does this mean? Well, it means that we just provide the technology and we get out of the way, right? So we want you guys to take ownership of your projects and your fundraising. And technically, for those of you that know um, coding or programming, it's actually much easier to go with the portal. It's much easier to create one site where we can control things versus creating hundreds of sites where we have no idea how you guys are going to use the platform. But that's the beauty of a platform. We have no control, right? It's every church, every missionary has a different calling, and you guys could tailor the site to how to best fit your needs. 
Okay? Um, so instead of telling you, uh, you know, more about what the platform does, let me just show you some of the sample projects. Okay, next slide. So this is my home church. Uh, we call it Jubilink. You can't see it in white. Um, not Juby. <laughs> it's called Jubilink. And we raised in the past two years 600 million won for missions. It's all for missions. Okay, all through the site. Next Ryan and Carolyn, they're one of our um, missionaries through Fruit for the Hungry in Southeast Asia. They use the site to raise funds. I think they might have spoken here. Right. Uh, next slide. New, New Philly, support you guys know. In two years, you guys raised $400,000 through the platform. $400,000. I don't know if you guys report this enough, but it's, it's pretty amazing. You guys are one of our fastest growing supporters. Okay. So this short-term staff. Um, you guys also do staff support, um, long-term missionaries. Next, John Neufeld. I just I don't know why I don't know why I included him, but just to show you can actually do personal support letters also. Next, New Song. I think David Gibbons spoke here recently, right? Um, they raised a hundred thousand dollars in two months for a new building that they're moving into. This is New Song LA. Okay. Next slide. Christian Friends of Korea, they raise money for North Korea. This is one project that they run for greenhouses so that the North Korean people can have sustainable food. Okay, next. Harvest, another uh, a friend of mine. They do it for short-term missions. Next. Ride Against Traffic. Some of you might have, have done this. Pastor Dae Hong, um, for, against uh, raising awareness for sexual trafficking. They had a bike trip to uh, Busan. Next. China Theological Symposium is a project run by Total Ideas, a friend of mine. They basically got Chinese house pa- church pastors, took them to the States for a theological training. Right? And they raised money for that. Can't read how much. They raised $62,000. Okay, next. CBI is one of our partners that you believe. Um, Michael O, they run a seminary called CBI. And this is one of their uh, missionaries that will be going over as staff. So they use it for staff support. Next. Living Water Church. I think Pastor Christian introduced me to them. They're digging wells, which we thought 5T would be doing. So we have other people doing that, raising $3,000 to provide water to 2,000 people. They just started this project. Okay, next. Direct Crisis Pregnancy Center run by WHC, Women's Hope Center. Um, I think it's Min, Min Huang. And it's just an amazing organization. They provide a safe place for Korean, especially single women that are pressured to get abortions, but they can come to this clinic and have the baby. They receive counseling, um, adoption services. It's really amazing what they're doing. Next. Okay. So um, when you provide a platform, you'll never know how God's going to use it. So if we went with the first model, there's no way I would have created a crisis pregnancy center. That's just not part of my DNA, right? I would have probably never done the bike-a-thon. Um, but that's the amazing thing when you let go of control. You let God, you, God's people, you know, run with their calling. Um, the other benefit, I think, is the financial return. You know, 5-2, our budget is about sixty to $65,000 a year. That's for two full-time staff. But what we did with that money with two full-time staff is our clients have been able to raise over $4 million in the past two years. And this is only 
we have a small group, a pilot group of 15 clients, 15 clients raising $4 million over the past two years. So that's hundreds of missionary short-term teams from thousands of donors. And this is just the beginning. Um, everything that we build, we want to multiply God's resources for the common good. That's our vision. We want to multiply, true to our calling, you know, five loaves, two, um, uh, two fish, five loaves. We want to be true to that calling to multiply what God has given us okay, for the common good. Now, to do any of this, we need your support. Okay, Matt and I is our partner, Matsuhaki. We live off support. And to be honest, it's been really hard. Fundraising is not something that's easy. I understand what missionaries say when they say, you know, fundraising is the hardest part of ministry. Um, and a part of me, I really thought that, you know, 60000 is not that much money. I thought some rich business person could get our idea because we're kind of in technology and we provide infrastructure. I thought they would get the concept and, you know, cut us a check for $100,000, no problem. But it's never happened. We instead got many small donations from many different people. And it's been, I think, really humbling. And I think the worst thing for us would have been to get that money right away because we would have not learned what our clients are going through, right? But now, having been on support for the past, uh, you know, three years, we understand what missionaries go through, and we actually build a better platform, better system, because we ourselves are on support. Now, there's three things that, um, you know, you guys could do, okay? The first is we need monthly supporters. You know, monthly supporters are the backbone of our organization, so it's true that when you give to 5-2, you're not giving directly to an orphanage. You're not giving directly to, you know, building wells. But what we do is we turn your donation and we multiply it so that others can do those things, right? That's our prayer. Our goal next year is to raise $20 million or have our clients raise $20 million. And that's just a rough estimate. If we can get about 100 clients, we believe we could hit that $20 million, Okay. The two, number two is please get the word out. Okay, we're going to be going to Urbana at the end of this year and having a booth, uh, trying to recruit volunteers, but also trying to spread the word about what we do and network with other organizations. Um, so please spread the word. Uh, tell your pastors, missionary friends. We have these name cards in the back. You guys can take those and you know give those to uh, people that might be interested. Um, and three... Because we're launching at Urbana, we really need your prayer support. This is a really critical time. So we need prayer warriors to really support us through, um, yeah, through prayer. Uh, please pray that we'll be faithful to our vision, that we won't get steered you know, off path. Please pray um, also that we'll have divine appointments at Urbana, where we're looking to kind of meet the right people, the right volunteers, and the right organizations. Okay? Okay, next. Okay. So now I want to spend the remaining time, most of my time, actually speaking to you about work. And this is something that's been on my heart for the past two years. I'm kind of consolidating everything uh, in the next 30, maybe 35 minutes. Okay? So if this were a sermon series, uh, there were, it would be a four-part series. And luckily for you, we're not going to go through all of it <laughs> today. The first sermon in this hypothetical series would be about rest. I think you guys learned this a lot, right, at this church. <laughs> Right? Um, because resting in God comes first. Your being comes before your doing. Being secure in your identity as sons and daughters. Right? 
Number two, the second sermon would be about our primary calling. Okay? The primary calling is revealed in the word of God to seek his kingdom first. Everything that's in the Bible, that's your primary calling. There's no guessing. It's already revealed to you, right? The third sermon would be about vocation, which is actually our secondary calling. Right? We really get fixated on this more than other things, but it's actually a secondary calling. The fourth message would be about how to discern calling. I think this is where singles especially spend most of your time. How to discern who I should marry, what job I should choose. That's really where we get stuck. But from my experience, if you know message one, which is the gospel, gospel rest. If you know message two, which is your primary calling. And if you know the value of work, the discernment usually falls into place. That's actually the least important out of, out of the four. Okay. So today I want to spend most of my time or all of my time on sermon three, which is the value of work. Okay, so I want to give you a rough over, overview of what work is, what work isn't. Okay, next slide. Oh, I'm sorry, same slide. So what's wrong with work? Okay, what's wrong with work? There's a saying that no one under deathbed, right, ever says, I wish I could have worked more. I, I think I've said this myself. I know I've heard it from the pulpit before. No one ever says, I wish I could have worked more. Because life is all about relationships, and we're taught this even at church. We're taught to believe that what really matters is family, you know, your Christian brothers and sisters, giving to the poor, right? Now, these things are all biblical. They're good and true. But the idea that work doesn't belong on the list is unbiblical. The idea that work is any less important than family is unbiblical. Okay, we'll go through why. Because somewhere along the way, we lost, I think, the biblical doctrine of work. Now, we know that the world abuses work, but I don't think Christians are actually any better. Because instead of defending the biblical doctrine of work, we've actually let culture define our theology, right? It's gone in reverse. And I think the proof is easy. The average Christian in the workplace, they're almost identical to the non-Christian, I'm not just talking about, you know, in praying before meals or evangelizing, leading Bible study at work. But in your view of work, Christians and non-Christians actually think the same. Because the modern view is that work is a means to an end. That's the modern view. Work is a means to an end. You could say that maybe non-Christians, they work for money, power, to buy nice things, right? But if Christians, if we work just to tithe just to give money to the poor, we're actually all in the same boat. We're all doing the same thing. We're all using work as a means to something else, right? But the Bible says that work itself is the thing. There's value not just in what work produces, but in the work itself. Not just in what work produces, but in the work itself. Now, most adults, we're going to spend half of our waking lives, at least eight hours a day, if you're lucky, working. And I just don't see God wasting half of your life as a means to an end, right? Time is too valuable for that. Now, Dorothy Sayers, um, she wrote an important essay after World War II called Why Work? I invite everyone to Google this, Dorothy Sayers' essays called Why Work? 
Now, in it, she places the blame of the war. Now, this is a provocative statement. World War II, she's saying, was started because of the wrong view and the broken system of work. Okay, let me read. Never think that wars are irrational catastrophes. They happen when wrong ways of thinking and living bring about intolerable situations. And one of the false ideas we had about economics was a false attitude both to work and to the good produced by work. Okay? Now, here's the damning statement. I'm, I'm saying this literally. The damning statement is that she places the blame of this wrong thinking on the church. Okay? On the church. She says, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. Okay, here's the clincher. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. Let me repeat, repeat that. She, meaning the church, has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. Now, this is Dorothy Sayers, a writer, saying this, so um, you know, maybe she's using hyperbole. But is it possible that the wrong view of work can cause wars, right? could be responsible for so much devastation? I mean, just the wrong view of work. I thought it was Hitler that caused World War II. Now, we have to check the facts, and of course, the facts are in God's word. So let's look at God's word. Um, and what we find is that in the Bible... Everyone works. In the Bible, everyone works. Let me read this list. The heroes in the Bible, most, had secular vocations. You guys know this. Isaac was in real estate. Jacob was a rancher. Joseph was in government. Moses spent 40 years as a sheep herder. Esther was a beauty queen. (laughs) David was a farmer who then became king. Daniel was an immigrant who later became prime minister. Lydia was a businesswoman in textiles. And Paul was a tent maker, right? Alongside doing missions, he was also literally making tents, right? To make money, supporting himself. So the Bible is a book written by workers, about workers, and for workers. So I want to present four lessons based on God's word, okay? Next slide, please. Okay, first is work is good. Work is good. Genesis 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, work is good because we know that God works. God works. So when we think of work, I think the problem is we usually start with Genesis 3. What's in Genesis 3? The fall, right? (laughs) So when we think of work, we think of the toil of labor, the pain of childbearing, right? That's the type of work we think about, all the pain associated with work. But you have to know that work predates the fall. It's in Genesis 1 and 2, right? So the right theology is that work is good before the fall, okay? Because God is a creator, we're made in his image, and therefore we are also creators, Okay, God designs and he shapes things. He turns chaos into order. And in doing so, he gives purpose to his creation. 
And we have the same gift as his children. Okay? Now, we should know that we don't create the same way that God creates. So I want to make that distinction. Tolkien had a word that I really like called sub-creation. So when Tolkien was creating Lord of the Rings, he was making this fantasy land. And it was, it's very biblical if you study um, Tolkien's writing. But he used the word sub-creation to talk about what we do. God creates out of nothing, but we create out of the materials that God has already given us. Right? Now, we have this amazing ability to create things and ideas and even people. Right? It's really the most amazing gift you can talk about, creating a, a child. Heather and I, like I said, it took us a long time to get pregnant. And you don't realize the gift until it's really taken from you. Right? So we went through a lot of prayers, visiting doctors, you know, going through ups and downs. But every child, we realize it's, it's really a miracle. Um, looking back, I realized that the reason I felt empty in my consulting job was because I didn't think that consulting was good work. Right? I thought it was okay work. I thought it was meaningful in the sense that it provided value to me right, as a salary but and some value to my clients. But it wasn't helping the poor. You know, that's sacred. Um, you know, helping my clients save a few million dollars which is a billion-dollar company, I was like, you know, if I'm not there, anyone could take my place. I really, I really didn't see the value. And I think a lot of us have been programmed to think this way implicitly, and it's often been taught by the church, separating the sacred from the secular, right? But if I had a biblical understanding of work, I really believe that I could have been doing consulting, still doing consulting right now, and been living out my calling back in Virginia. I really believe that. Um, but it's because in God's sovereignty, I was really immature and really selfish at the time that God led me here. And we started 5-2 Foundation. I got married to Heather. So there's this whole sequence of events which I can't explain. But I do know that consulting itself was actually good work. I just didn't see it. Okay? Um, and what I'm doing now, the funny thing is, it's actually very similar to what I was doing before. Right? I was using technology. Um, bringing uh, kind of buyers and sellers together. Um, so I'm learning that 5-2 is actually no more holy than consulting, right? It's no more holy. Okay, lesson two is work is not about you. Okay, work is not about you. Actually, it's not just work. It's life is not primarily about you. Life is not about you. Now turn to the person next to you and say, life is not about you. You know, we're, see, we, we love saying that to each other, but no one likes to hear it. Now, it seems so obvious, and no one is so egotistical that they would say, yeah, life is all about me. But, you know, we have this selfish um, center where we always have to think in terms of ourselves. And, you know, it's really hidden. Um, maybe in religion, right? It's hidden in a lot of subtleties. And the Bible talks about this a lot. The primary biblical concept for this habit that we have is called idolatry, okay? Idolatry is placing anything other than God at the center, anything other than God at the center. And we all do this, I think, every day. Now, I remember reading Purpose Driven Life. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this. The first chapter, do you guys remember what, what that is? 
It's basically, it's not about you. I don't know why, but that stuck out with me. I think it's because I read it when I was traveling. It was one of those things that sparked something, and that's when I rededicated myself to God. Life is not about you. And it's something actually very refreshing to hear if you have all the stress, maybe pressure of life being about you. Um, so we have this language uh, that's kind of deeply ingrained right, as part of what we do. And it's especially dangerous, I think, with ministry, especially dangerous with ministry. You know, even when I read the Bible um, or I'm, if I'm preparing for this message, um, I always have to ask, like, what is God trying to teach me? You know, Lord, what are you trying to show me through this verse? And it seems like such a holy prayer, a holy question. But I often have to find that God is often not trying to teach me anything about me when I'm reading God's word. You know, I'm looking for application. I jump straight to, Lord, should I do this or do that? Should I live here, leave, you know, live there? Should I give this much money to that person or this person? You know, I'm trying to find application. But when you read the word, the first thing you have to do is realize that God is speaking about himself. Right? God is speaking about himself. All of the Bible, it's all God's story. Every person Every illustration, every parable, every last word is painting a story about God, right? Your application comes because of who God is, when God reveals himself, right? So God is the main character, right? Now, this self-focus that we have, um, it has a direct effect on the way we think about work. Now, we have this idea in our mind that I think there's a perfect job for me out there. There's one job out there that... You know, once I find that, it's going to be like a key fitting a lock. You know, I'm going to have, you know, perfect contentment. Um, you know, my soul, like everything will just come together, right? <laughs> um, but many of us, you know, I think we've, if you're a little bit older, you've probably become more disillusioned, right? This romantic view of work, it's been broken as you've tried different jobs, maybe, you know, work, worked a while. And maybe even young people, I'm sure it's, you could become disillusioned after six months of teaching English, I'm sure, right? Um, but, you know, I guess what I want to say is personal fulfillment is not the goal of life. Personal fulfillment is not the goal of life. Contrary to everything that the world tells you, fulfillment is a result It's a result of seeking the kingdom of God first, right? It's the result of placing God at the center. You know, one of the most commonly used words in the Bible to describe God is glory, kabod. That's a Hebrew word. But glory basically means weight or heaviness, right? God has a heaviness about himself, a gravity, which we cannot compete against. So when we, in our thoughts and actions, intentional or not, when we place ourselves at the center, we're like a speck of dust in space, asking the sun to orbit around us. And we know that the laws of nature just don't work that way. Whatever has the most gravity in space, that's what everything revolves around. God has the most gravity in our lives, or he should. We weren't made to seek fulfillment apart from God, right? So our problem with vocation is that we're going about it the wrong way, right? With the wrong center. We think too small about work 
because our view of God is so small. We've pushed God out to the periphery, so our view of vocation is so small. So if personal fulfillment is not the goal, then what is the goal of work? What's the goal of work? Okay, next slide. Work is for the common good. Work is for the common good. Okay. The purpose of work is to love our neighbor, not just believers, but actually all people. I think this is where Christians get kind of confused sometimes. In other words, work is for the common good, right? Let's look at the life of Daniel. Um, let me give you a short background. You know, Daniel was the chief political advisor to three tyrants. Now, imagine Daniel tried to work out his calling. On the one hand, he wants to be faithful to God, to his people. On the other hand, he's being called to serve his enemies, his captors. Right? But in 539 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus, right, Persians and Babylon's are enemies, he captured Babylon, and he, to everyone's you know, astonishment, he freed the Jews. He told them to go back. He actually told them to rebuild your temple, right? So this is uh, recorded all throughout the Old Testament. But guess who was the prime minister during the transition of power, right? It was Daniel. So during the transition of power from Babylon to Persia, Daniel was at the right place at the right time. And in the middle of Daniel, he reads from Jeremiah's letter, And this is God's instruction for his people who are living in exile. I just recently found out when I was reading this at um, Hillside, they're all laughing. I didn't understand why. Someone at the uh, end told me that this was your theme verse for the year. (laughs) Jeremiah 29, 4. Okay, let me read. And keep in mind, uh, he's reading this because the time of the prophecy of, of exile, which was 70 years, is kind of coming to a close. So Daniel's probably looking to God's word for some kind of encouragement or direction. So he turns to the scroll in Jeremiah, and he reads this. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Skipping. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Okay. Great verse. Now, it's shocking that God would tell his people to seek the prosperity of his enemies. It's much easier for New Philly to adopt this and say in Seoul when you guys aren't being held captive. But imagine if you guys were taken slaves somewhere, stripped out of Seoul somewhere else, and God is telling you to seek the peace and prosperity of your enemies. That's the situation that the Jews were in, right? He wasn't saying just, you know, play the part, you know, let the 70 years run out, and then I'll free you. He was saying, love your neighbor, right? Invest in the city, and it will prosper you. You know, we can't predict how God will use our work, and that's not our job. God just calls us to love, and the way we love is primarily by working. The way we love is by working. Now, because all work is sacred and because work is common to all, all work is a service for the common good. Now, I don't think anyone will disagree with the fact that, you know, Christians, we're called to love everyone. We're called to love our neighbors. You know, we all know the Good Samaritan. So we don't have a problem thinking that. But what about the work of unbelievers? Is the work that unbelievers do, is their work sacred? 
as well? Now, I raise this point because as Christians, I think we're so quick to judge others. We're so quick to separate Christians from non-Christians, sacred from secular. And it, I think, limits our thinking but also gives us a lot of pride. And this goes back to lesson two, which is because we're so self-centered, we don't have God at the center, we, we limit what God could do through work, also through unbelievers. So where do unbelievers fit in God's story? Where do unbelievers fit in God's story? And if we look at the life of Daniel, what we find, this is from Isaiah 45, is that Cyrus is actually called the anointed one. Cyrus is called to be anointed with the spirit. This is God speaking. God is saying this about a pagan king, right? Keep this in mind. God is saying this about a pagan king. Now, anointed is actually a heavy word because it's the same word for Messiah, right? Same word. Because God used both Daniel the Jew and Cyrus the pagan to free his people and rebuild his temple. Both were fulfilling their calling, right? The implication is that even non-believers can engage in sacred work, right? Now, this should give us humility about our work and how we treat others, especially non-believers, because you have to remember that all of us were at one time non-believers as well, right? So we've all been adopted into the family. Now, do you ever wonder why non-Christians, if you look around, they, um, they look like they're prospering so much? They're driving nice cars, nice families, you know, nice cars. You ever wonder why? <laughs> you ever wonder why they're so, you know, they're prospering? And I, I mean, I can't explain the full detail. I don't know the full answer, but the simple answer It's just because God is good. Just because God is good. God is so good that his grace pours out to all his children. And this is called common grace. Right? Common grace. And I think we forget this so much time because we want to talk about special grace, revelation. But common grace is all around us. Right? Christians don't have a monopoly on grace. Right? Christians don't have a monopoly on grace. Matthew 5, 45 says, The sun rises and the rain falls on the righteous and unrighteous. Isaiah 28 says, The farmer learned from God even when he doesn't know it. God is teaching the farmer, right? Through the seasons, through the rains. You know, Bach, at the end of every um, piece, he would always write, For the glory of God. You know, uh, I think Christians always want to adopt Bach as some evangelical, you know? (laughs) But Mozart didn't write that. Mozart had a very different life, right? But can you say that Bach's music is more sacred, more beautiful, more holy than Mozart's music, right? We don't have to be concerned about labeling people good or bad, labeling their work good or bad, because God is orchestrating the world through work. He's orchestrating everyone through work. You know, there's a saying, uh, I think it was by Milton Friedman. He said, it takes 1,000 people to make one pencil. Does anyone have a normal pencil here? A, a normal pencil? Can you hold that up? It takes 1,000 people to make that. Now, I've seen a recent video recently, which I, I should post on Facebook. They're estimating that it takes millions of people, actually, to make that now in the global economy. I mean, just let's forget millions. Let's think, it takes 1,000 people to make one pencil. Okay. The reason that is, is because the pencil has actually four different industries. Can you hold that up? 
four industries. There's wood. You see there's a graphite rod. There's steel, the little thing holding the eraser. And then there's rubber. It's four industries from all over the world, right, that come together to make that one pencil. Think about the global coordination required to bring that one pencil to market, right? Now, imagine this pencil being used to write maybe the next masterpiece, or maybe Da Vinci would use a pencil to draw, um, you know, something so great. But can you say that the lumberjack's work, the lumberjack cutting the wood that eventually became the pencil, is any less holy than what Da Vinci was doing, drawing with the pencil, right? So when you leave here today, you have to look around, right? You have to think about how the world is serving each other through work. Taxi drivers, waiters, lawyers, you know, we're all in the service industry. And without being cynical, you have to marvel at how God is showing grace to everyone. So we have no idea how God will use anyone's work for his glory. And that's, like I said, not our job. Our hope and our job as Christians is to point people to the giver of those gifts, right? Think about what it takes for any of you to go on a mission trip. I mean, a pencil, a thousand people. How many people does it take to make an airplane, the engineers, all the materials? It takes a global economy to make an airplane. But none of you would be able to go and preach the gospel without an airplane, right? Much less a computer or whatever you need to do missions, right? It's all interconnected. And we think it's holy preaching the word, but an engineer or a blue-collar worker you know, sweeping at the airplane factory, that thing's not holy, right? We have such a limited view because we create these distinctions, okay? And God will get the glory in the end no matter what. Our job is not to create these labels, right? Okay, lesson four, work is eternal. Work is eternal. This is the one that I think is a little hard to swallow. Now, another major reason we don't value work is because we don't have the right eschatology. Okay? Eschatology just means that we don't know the ending to the story, right? So we don't know what to look forward to. We don't know how to behave now to get to some ending that we don't know about, right? One author said this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one, right? Now, speaking of eschatology, we usually get this from Revelation, right? So in Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, how do you picture heaven? You picture um, clouds, maybe? Escalators going up. You know, that's the typical drawing. How do you guys picture heaven? Now, the Bible says that in the end, it's actually heaven that will come down. Heaven that will descend. Right? We're not going to be um, zapped up anywhere. We're not going to leave all this behind. It's actually heaven coming down to redeem all of creation, including the material world, including everything, right? It's not just your bodies that God is redeeming. 
He's redeeming all of nature, everything around us. Romans 8 says that all of creation groans with the expectation for this new day. Now, remember in Genesis that creation was good, right? This is pre-fall. The material was good. Now, if all this is true, there's a link between what we do here on earth and the heaven that will come down, right? There's a link. There's a continuity between heaven and earth. We don't know exactly what that continuity looks like, but we know that there's a link. So if our daily work done for the glory of God and the common good of others in some way carries over to the new heavens and a new earth, then our present work is overflowing with immeasurable value and eternal significance. Okay, let me ask another question. This is the one that might be hard. Will you work in heaven? Will you have jobs in heaven? Okay. Some of you cringe as I even ask the question <laughs> because your idea of heaven is, you know, you work 30, 40 years, you collect pension, or you retire, you die, and then heaven is just pers- permanent retirement. <laughs> right? You think of just singing all day or I don't know, I, you know, in heaven, just praising God all day, um, which we will do, but... It's really in what form. So will you work in heaven? Now, let me ask uh, another version of this question. Will you have hobbies in heaven? What are hobbies? Hobbies are anything you do for the joy of the thing itself, right? Hobbies are just things that you do just because you want to. Now, I love um, fly fishing. I love sports. So I have no problem imagining that God would grant me abundant trout in heaven. (laughs) I have no idea, I have no problem thinking of just fly fishing all day in heaven because it's something that I love to do and it's something that's kind of peaceful and heavenly, right? (laughs) But when I think about work, why can't we think of work in heaven the same way? If work, if we redefine what work is supposed to be, right? Because in heaven, there's no distinction between work and hobby, right? And even worship, It's all done for the pure joy of the thing itself. You'll use whatever gifts you have to co-create with God, and it won't seem like work, at least not our definition of work. Because in heaven, everything will be holy. Everything will be holy. I love this verse in Zechariah 14. It says that when the day of the Lord comes, even the cooking pots will be called holy to the Lord. Even the cooking pots. So pots and pans are just as holy as singing praises to God. Right? Because in heaven, all glory will naturally flow to the one who made us for his pleasure. Right? Now, you know, the Bible doesn't explicitly say what heaven's going to be like. It gives us um, some principles and sketches. I think one reason why the Bible is vague about heaven is because God wants us to take part in creating it. God wants his children to take part in creating heaven with him. Now, we, as God's children made in his image, have the divine gift of being co-creators with God, right? So can you imagine this? If each one of us have the ability to create a piece of heaven here and now, wherever you are. Like I said, you know, Bach at the end of every piece he wrote, to God alone be the glory. 
And if you ever listen to Bach live, you close your eyes, you might actually get a feel like you get a glimpse of heaven, right? Because it's such a masterpiece. But the giant leap of faith is knowing and believing that we all have the same ability to create heaven here and now. It might not be a masterpiece to someone else, but to God, wherever you usher in heaven, wherever you usher in the kingdom of God, that is heaven. That is perfection. Right? Now let me draw us to a close. The summary of the Bible, it's very simple. It's to love God and to love others. We've been told this many times. Now that's the what. That's the what question. And all the other stories in the Bible gives us principles of the how. How do we love God and how do we love others? And what I think what we learned today is that the primary way we learn to love God, love others, is with work. Right? So we went through four lessons. We know that work is good because God works. We know that work is not about you because only God deserves all the glory. We know that work is for the common good. Right? Because God is orchestrating all people to serve each other. We know that work is eternal because heaven will descend and redeem all of creation. Right? Now, ultimately, every one of these lessons, they point to Jesus. Right? Jesus is the ultimate worker. He's made in God's image, doing sacred work for the common good. The carpenter from Nazareth worked. Dorothy Sayers wrote this about Jesus. She said, No cricket table or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter shop at Nazareth. <laughs> Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth? Right? See, his vocation was in carpentry, but Jesus also had another job. Right? For three years, he taught his disciples. He healed the sick blessed the poor, and in the end, he ultimately died. His work was to die in service to his enemies, for us. Jesus said, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And we always have to remember that it is only the finished work of Jesus that saves, right? So we can rest and know that work doesn't save us. Right? Work will never save you, no matter how good it is. But we can also work out of our rest. We can work out of our rest knowing that our work has eternal value and significance before God. Right? Now, something you realize is that no one really values work until it doesn't get done. Right? Try not taking the trash out you know, for a week. Um, you know, every time the subway runs, stops running, they go on strike. Everyone's complaining on Facebook. When work doesn't happen, that's the only time people complain. When everything's going well, you just assume, oh, that's the way it should be. You know, Heather and I, when we um, had our baby and we came back from the hospital, we found out that there's no hot water in our apartment for a month. Imagine coming with your firstborn. We didn't know what we were doing and not having hot water. I had to boil water every day and, you know, give them a bath. Um, so we don't value work until something stops working, right? And I saw this most apparent in North Korea. Heather and I got to visit North Korea a few years ago. And I remember, 
you know, in North Korea, they actually have a church. They have several churches, and we visited one church. We went in, and as we were walking up, there were stairs, and there was a little boy, maybe 12 years old, just sweeping the steps, sweeping the dust, you know, and we, we didn't think anything about it. We went in, had a three-hour service, and then we came back out. And he was in the exact same spot, sweeping the exact same piece of dirt from side to side, right? No direction, no meaning. He was just doing what he was told to do. And in North Korea, it said that everyone has a job, zero un- zero percent unemployment rate, right? But what's so sad in North Korea is that when the dignity of work is stripped from God's creation, you see what hell is like. Hell is the absence of all things good. So when we don't have the dignity to work, right, it's, it's honestly the saddest thing I've ever seen, to see the expression on a doll's face, right? He, it's, um, I mean, it's heartbreaking to think that this boy is not receiving any money, right? But there's a lot of us who would do things without money, but it's the fact that he had no choice whether he had to be there or not, right? So you see when the dignity of work is taken, what the world will be like. And I think we just take this for granted. There's a lot of bad things about Seoul, a lot of bad things about democracy even. But one thing that you can say is it does offer the dignity of work, right? Now, we started this journey today in uh, Genesis, right? God creating in Genesis. We went through... Jeremiah and Isaiah, and we ended in Revelation. And that's the journey that all of us are on, from the garden in Genesis to the city in Revelation. We're all on this journey from the garden to the city. We're all working in the garden, cultivating it, sub-creating with God to turn the garden into the holy city, right? to usher in heaven here on earth by working and working with joy. Okay, so church, this is my prayer for you, is that we would recover this biblical value of work, that we would recover this biblical value of work. Now, I want to end with a poem from um, Kipling. It's titled, When Earth's Last Picture is Painted. Okay, let me read this. When Earth's last picture is painted and the tubes are twisted and dried, When the oldest colors have faded and the youngest critic has died, we shall rest. And faith, we shall need it, lie down for an eon or two, till the master of all good workmen shall put us to work anew. And no one will work for the money. No one will work for the fame. But each for the joy of the working. And each in a separate star will draw the thing as he sees it, for the God of things as they are. Okay. Church, let's pray.